This is one of the great sections in Scripture that gives us a mini picture of the big redemptive story. So though it's actual historical narrative, and we can learn a lot from that alone, it also points us beyond those facts to something much bigger that God is doing throughout the whole of human history. And so what we're going to try and do this evening is to try and lay that big picture over the top of this narrative to to appreciate just what we are being pointed to in this section. So let's dive in. Verse 1 sees David ask, is there, still anyone, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? So if you remember, David had previously made a covenant with Jonathan, King Saul's son, that David would show steadfast love to Jonathan's house, his family line. So what we have here is that the new regime is sworn to protect and provide for the old regime. Now, you don't have to be a scholar of history to know that this kind of thing just doesn't happen. What happens is a new person becomes king and then slaughters all the people of the old family, of the old dynasty, so they don't have any challenges to their power. But in this newly established kingdom, the first thing that we read is that David is trying to fulfill a covenant. He is trying to find members of Jonathan's household so that he can protect them and provide for them, so that he can show in the Hebrew chesed. Now, chesed is, is translated as, as kindness or maybe steadfast love, loving kindness. There's no direct English equivalent. But the idea that we need to grasp here is that David wants to show an unconditional love based upon his covenant and not upon the worth of the person in question. So it's not, they're just great, which makes me want to love them but more, I want to love them because of what I have done. He is committed to loving them and providing for them and protecting them regardless of what they are like. So the motivation for loving them comes from David and not from the people that he wants to love. They don't have to earn his reward here. In reality, being from the the other line and, and a potential rival, This isn't even a a neutral party we're talking about here, but this is someone who was against the king. So the love that David wants to show is even in spite of who they are. So because of the word that David gave, he seeks to love them. This is what the kingdom is about. This is how it is going to be run, how it is going to look. A kingdom established by God deals out chesed, deals out loving kindness. Instead of power being used to amass personal wealth or or gain control, it is used to to save and and, and to build up. So here is David's intention. How can he fulfill this covenant? Moving on to verses 2 to 6 there, we, we find out who is still left from Jonathan's family and to who David can show this unconditional love, a covenant protection and provision. So there is a servant who seems to be in the know um, about Jonathan's line, and he is brought into David and tells him of Mephibosheth. And in verse 3, we read two key details about him. One, that he is the son of Jonathan, so he's the house of the line of Saul. And two, that he is crippled in his feet. We've already partly mentioned the significance of the first point, that he was part of the wrong camp. He was by birth, a rival to the true king, 
and someone who could try and claim the throne from David. To a certain extent, his very existence is a challenge to the king's power. But then we're also told that he is crippled in his feet. Now, there are a couple of things that we might take from this. Firstly, it might be that the, the servant is trying to plead the case for Mephibosheth. We could read this like Ziba saying, yes, he's a rival, but he's of no threat to you. And although there might be some truth to that, that he's, that he's not an actual threat, it sort of goes against the, the thrust of the passage, or at least it isn't the main point. Perhaps more likely than learning that Mephibosheth isn't a threat or, or that he should be pitied, we're supposed to see that he isn't even valuable to David as an asset. He isn't someone who can be used to safeguard David's kingdom in the way that, that Saul used David before, sending him out on military missions. He isn't presented here as someone who is, is, is connected. He is presented as someone who only, is only downside for David, who can't do him any good, and who could really justifiably cause David and his family serious problems. So think about it. If he was a valuable warrior, David might have reason to spare him, even if it was a double-edged sword. If he was presented as being wealthy or, or connected, then he would have ways of using David's, being used for David's advantage. But he isn't any of those things. No one even seems to know that he exists, apart from his family servant. He can do nothing for David. He is not a good investment. He has no upside. And it seems that Mephibosheth knows it. See in verse 6 there where he is brought in to see David. What does he do? You, you'll read there in the Bibles that, that he bowed down, but, but literally it means that he, he fell on his face. And this isn't just an act because we hear, see there, David says, don't be afraid. So we know that Mephibosheth is expecting the worst. He is expecting what the world says he deserves. He comes in knowing that he has nothing to offer, nothing to redeem his life, and that his very presence there is an affront to the king. Can you imagine the tension in the room? Or at least the palpable fear of Mephibosheth? Well, it doesn't last long. Look with me to verse 7. Now, there's a literary device in Hebrew that, that shows us that, that this is the heart of the chapter. This is its main point. And it says this, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness, that's the chesed from verse 1, for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So what we have again here is David again invoking the covenant that he made with Jonathan. So notice that in the first sentence, he just states that, I am going to show you kindness because of your father. So not because of Mephibosheth, not because of what David can get out of it, but because of this agreement that was made before David even knew that he existed. And the next sentence gives us the practical application of what that kindness looks like. What we have here is provision and protection. Provision in giving him the land that his family had before, an inheritance that would generate income and give status to the nation and also in the more immediate way of providing him with food from the king's table. And then protection in not only choosing not to kill him, in not choosing to, to hold those things against him, 
but also the, the implied protection of being at the king's table. No one will mis mistake Mephibosheth as an enemy when he is a permanent fixture of the king's court. So instead of stripping him of his freedom, the kindness of the covenant gives Mephibosheth land. Instead of taking his life, the kindness of the covenant provides Mephibosheth with security. And instead of experiencing the hostility of the king, through this covenant, Mephibosheth joins him at his table. So do you see this, this juxtaposition, this complete opposite occur? On the pattern of the world, Mephibosheth deserves death. But because of this covenant, he not only gets life, but he gets it abundantly. Eating at the king's table. This is not just kindness. It's not just being nice to him. This is a radical, extreme, loving kindness. It's an outrageous act. We might be tempted to think that it's not really that big a deal. We're kind to people all the time, and, and, and we don't kill people on a daily basis, and, and that's great. But this isn't like that. This is like a terrorist being brought before a judge, and instead of the death penalty, the judge brings him home, feeds him, makes him part of his family. It's really hard to connect emotionally with that, on that level of kindness, because we probably never need to receive something like that. And so it's hard for us to, to have a reference point. But just try and imagine yourself being in the dock of a courtroom, the verdict read out, guilty, and you are guilty. There's no miscarriage of justice, no hope of appeal. But then instead of condemning you to death, the judge gives you life and life abundantly. It's no wonder then that Mephibosheth in verse 8 bows down again, falls on his face again, this time not in fear, but in wonder. Look at this line. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now that's an appropriate response. Confusion, gratitude, wonder all mixed into one. Disbelief that the circumstances have changed so profoundly and so quickly and so unexpectedly on his part. So in Mephibosheth's eyes, he looks in the king with fear and amazement and gratitude. And he looks at himself, seeing the huge disparity in position, and calls himself a dead dog. This isn't poor self-esteem. It's just an image of how unequal the two positions are. There we have the king, all-powerful and ruling. And beside him, Mephibosheth, who for all the power that he has, might as well be a dead dog. But this dead dog has reason to celebrate. Because in the next verse, David calls his urn back and bestows the blessing upon Mephibosheth to the point where in verse 11, it says that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This provision and protection is, is more than he can understand. And that will be a really lovely place to round things off, to finish off the scene. But do you see the little wrinkle that is left for us? He was lame in both feet. Doesn't that seem a strange addition? But it's a little reminder that all of this blessing that was given to him, it's not given because he deserves it. 
but because of the covenant that David had made. It's like a, a footnote to remind us that Mephibosheth didn't earn any of this, that what he is hasn't been changed, even as who he is has been utterly transformed. And what a transformation it has been from useless rebel, unable to do anything for himself, to being like one of the king's sons. This is the story of Mephibosheth. Now, in general, there are many times when we shouldn't insert ourselves into the Bible story. None of us are like David slaying the giants in our lives. But here what we see is an image of the whole redemptive narrative and the various characters playing the parts of God and man. Mephibosheth, like us, a rebel from birth, incapable of saving himself, comes before the true king who would be just and fair in punishing him, just like God would be just and fair if he punished us. But instead of his works being weighed, instead of what we can do for God being weighed, the true king judges based upon his covenant, based upon who he is. And in his goodness and in his steadfast love, a no good, useless rebel is made part of the family, given protection and provision beyond anything that he could have hoped for. I just see myself echoed back in Mephibosheth. This, this could be my story. This could be all of our stories. Because each of us is a rebel, born in sin and unable to, do, to save ourselves. We are by nature and capacity hell-bound. We've tried to be kings in our own lives and ignore God, and so we are deserving of the wrath of the true king. But before we could do anything, God calls us to himself. He acts to show us loving kindness because of who he is and not because of anything that we have done. He comes as Jesus to, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died, so that the wrath of God that we deserve was poured out on him. So that now, even though we are the same sinful people, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees the perfect life and obedience that Christ had covering us. Instead of a rebel, he sees a child of God. This is the good news that we were on our way to hell, but God stepped in and brought us into his family. That we don't have to earn this grace. We just, we just have to receive it. That even though that we aren't perfect, Christ is. And he has called us to himself. He has given us the spirit to live within us so that as we approach the throne, we fall down in wonder and gratitude, not in terror and shame. Can you see it here? Can you see the echoes of eternity coming through this story? Can you see how God reveals who he is and what he is like through his word? If it still doesn't jump out at you, please take some time this week to, to read the story again and ask God to reveal all that he is saying about himself here. Because this gospel is the basis for all we do. It's something that we need to receive and believe and proclaim. It's the foundation of mission. It's the only thing that we can say to a watching world. This is the hope of glory, the power of God unto salvation, the message of the kingdom. 
This gospel is not the starting point, not, not the springboard. It is the heart of our faith. This is the thing that we should be getting excited about. You can be as nice as you like, be as kind as you can be, be as generous as possible. But without this message, without this hope of God saving sinners, without the need for repentance and trust and worship, all that you're doing is providing spiritual euthanasia, making people comfortable here as they die. Now, all those things, being kind, being generous, they're all good things. We should be nice, we should be kind, we should be generous. But they aren't ultimate things. They aren't enough to see us rebels, uh, to see rebels and sinners become like the sons of God. Practical things are good things, but they just pale in comparison to the good news. The mark of David's kingdom is that he keeps covenant. The unique thing about it the thing that is first emphasized after it has been established is that it is marked by the covenant. So let me ask you, is your life marked by the covenant? Not David's covenant here, but, but the covenant that it points to, the covenant of redemption, the gospel. Is God's kingdom, as it is seen in your life, an expression of this gospel covenant? Maybe you're not a Christian here today and this is all new. But God is calling you to see yourself as Mephibosheth, a rebel, a lawbreaker, unable to save yourself, but also to see God in your situation, wanting to show you loving kindness, wanting to save you, wanting for you to turn to him and repent of your sin and come home. Come to the king's table and be like a child of God. The offer of forgiveness and adoption is right there in front of you. So don't, please don't brush it under the carpet and go back to pretending that you aren't spiritually crippled. Come to the one who can give you life. But for those of us who know and love Jesus, who say that we are saved, what does this mean for our lives? And really quickly, I just want to give you two applications. Firstly, seeing this story play out in our lives should affect how we think about ourselves. The Christian who keeps this gospel in front of them has no room for arrogance, no room for judgment, judgmentalism or selfishness. Realizing that you were the crippled rebel means that all your achievements are just the gracious act of God. That when you see others in their sin, you can genuinely say, there but by the grace of God go I. Because without God's grace, you would be that prostitute. You would be that drug dealer that terrorist. I genuinely don't know where I would be if the Lord hadn't saved me, but I can tell you it would be somewhere very dark indeed. But since God has saved us, we are like the sons of the King. Our identity is in Christ. It is safe and secure regardless of how we fail, regardless of how many times we mess up, regardless of our limitations and our circumstances. If you know Jesus, you are a child of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So you might feel worthless. You might feel without value. But the truth is that you're treasured by God. You are welcome at the king's table.
No matter how long it's been or how far you've strayed, every prodigal is welcomed back to the sound of trumpets as heaven itself rejoices. That is who you are. Don't let this world tell you otherwise. We need to tell stories of redemption, stories of grace. We need to see our lives as part of that story and not the the social media cultural moment of comparison and shame and the valuing of the worldly things. We need to see our lives as part of this story because that is who we are. So as we meet for tea and coffee afterwards and somebody asks you about your week, what story are you going to tell? That's who we are. Now, Now, secondly, seeing this gospel in our lives affects what we do. Think about Mephibosheth here. What does he do in response? He falls down in wonder, saying, who am I that you should regard me? And gratefully receives the blessings that David has for him. It's almost like it really rang in my head, Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? If you go and read that psalm, you will see the wonder of the psalmist turn to worship. So often we think that we need to be useful. We need to be productive. We need to be out at work for God. And there is something there. We do need to think about that. But the primary thing that this gospel should produce in us is worship. A Christian that has this gospel always in front of them is drawn to worship. That includes public worship, but it isn't limited to that. It goes beyond simple attendance to every minute of every day. Do you do all things for the glory of God? Take some time tonight or this week and think, is your Christian life marked by worship or just by doing things? You might like to discuss that with people during tea and coffee after. But this narrative is just so helpful for us in our daily lives. It gives us a glimpse of the big redemptive story of God and helps us to focus on the primary things, to refocus ourselves on the reason that we have a hope. So take some time this week and reread this chapter. See how Mephibosheth represents you and how without God you were utterly lost out there in the cold, but that now with him you have the right to eat at his table and be called a child. Is this not good news? Is this not the best news? This is the news that makes Christians all around this globe sing for joy. It's what makes praise well up within us and turn our eyes and our hearts to worship. And so if you're with me in this, if you see that gospel, and even if it is just for the first time, you know that your heart needs to rejoice and turn to worship, then we're going to stand together now as the band come back up. And we're going to sing a couple of songs. We're going to respond to all that God has done for us who come into his court sinners, but leave as part of his family. Hallelujah. We're going to sing our final piece now as we remind ourselves of the gospel and who deserves the highest praise.